Father Brian Massingale is a professor of theological and social ethics at Fordham University in New York. He's authored Racial Justice and the Catholic Church. Massingale was in the country recently, and he shared some interesting thoughts with us on the parallels between South Africa and the United States in terms of race relations, particularly with regard to social integration. So, Father Brian, you've spent quite a bit of time in South Africa recently on the speaking tour. I imagine you've engaged ordinary South Africans on the issues of race and social ethics. What's your sense of where we are in terms of those issues? One of my lasting impressions of South Africa is how racially isolated the population still is, even post-1994. I noticed that neighborhoods are still commonly described largely in racial terms, that this is a black neighborhood, this is a white neighborhood, this is a colored neighborhood. Um, During the uh, presentations, I noticed that during the tea breaks, the participants would largely socialize in racial groups that were almost entirely composed of one one race. Um, I noticed that churches here are still very much composed almost entirely of one racial group. Mm. And so... One of the lasting impressions I have is that um, even post-apartheid, racial isolation and separation still continues, though largely in informal ways and no longer by law. Um, but I also notice that people are, they know that this is a conversation that they need to have. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the major differences between South Africa and the United States. In the United States, we don't want to even admit that we have a race problem. Whereas in South Africa, with very few exceptions, people don't debate whether there is a problem. They don't know quite what to do about it, but they're very much aware that there is a problem here. That's very interesting indeed, because I was going to ask you what sort of parallels you see in America's process of tackling racism with ours here in South Africa. Well, people kind of ask me all the time, why did we bring an American in to talk about race in South Africa? And I point out to them that about 90% of what I would say about race in America, I can say here in South Africa and find a great deal of resonance. Mm. Um, Both countries have had histories of legalized discrimination and legalized racial separation, legalized racial inequality. And both have overcome that legal forms of discrimination, but we find that we're still grappling with the informal legacies of the past. And both countries are grappling with the, what's the next phase of the struggle? That now that we've overcome a, a very visible enemy, what do we do next? And how do we deal with the more covert um, forms of racism that are still present and still mark our, both of our societies with severe racial tensions that we don't know how to name as clearly as we did prior to when we had a, a, a visible enemy to, to confront. See, that's such an interesting question. In fact, you've preempted my next question as well, because I wanted to to locate this within South Africa's peaceful transition to democracy in the 90s, but that's had contradictory outcomes for us. On the one hand, we averted a civil war and a lot of resulting blood shed. But we also put a a kind of superficial self on very deep wounds uh, that needed opening up, that needed a thorough kind of cleansing before they were sutured. But that, of course, hasn't happened, and we can't turn back time. So what do we do now? Okay. One of the things that impresses me about South Africa is the lack of a shared social narrative. 
One of the most moving experiences I had in South Africa was spending an afternoon at the Apartheid Museum. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just spent like three to four hours there. And it was really amazing to me because I got such a deep insight into the history of this country. And I realized that the rich, different racial groups were told different histories. Mm-hmm. And so there wasn't a common narrative that was given. And so afterwards, as I traveled around South Africa, I found out that many South Africans are unaware of the story that's being narrated in that museum. And so there's never been, at least as an outsider I can say this, that a real confrontation with what happened. How do we get to where we are now? And I think that's really essential because if we, if nations don't confront their past, yes. then that past is going to continue to haunt them with consequences enduring to the present day. But I don't think the South African society has really grappled with the question, what did apartheid do to us? We know it's a national trauma. It was a national trauma. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we've dealt with how did it affect people personally. One of the things that happened in Cape Town, someone said, and they shared about the fact that during apartheid, um, they were able to have a, 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 judo, a, self, a judo or a martial arts competition with the self-defense forces. It was one of the few times where a black person could beat up you know, a police officer and there not be any severe consequences to it. <laughs> yes. But he talked about the fact that it really it made him get in touch with the hatred and the rage. But then what also he said later on, he discovered that many people who were involved in the South African Defense Forces, they were doing things only because they were forced to do them yes. and that they couldn't escape the, 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 you know, being in that, in that situation, that they mm-hmm. didn't have the kind of deferments that would get them out of that situation that other whites did have. Yes. And so I think that there, one of the things I've discovered is that there's a, a, still a lot of anger and fear and uncertainty under the surface that has never had a way of expression. And the TRC process came up over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And as I point out, as an outsider, I think the TRC process is something that South Africans should always be proud of because they did something that no other society had ever done. But it was a limited process. It was limited only to dealing with gross human rights abuses. Mm. But there are other forms of trauma that happened during that era that need other forms of expression. And here I think we're something where the churches have a real possibility, a real opportunity to create those kinds of safe spaces where those personal stories that are part of the national narrative can be told and where those memories can come to the fore. And I think one of the most essential things we need to do, well, I would advise South Africans to do, is to really confront its past and to make sure that story is told because it's only in the telling of the story and being honest about it that societies can move forward to a better future. Father Brian, what sort of form do you see that taking? Because clearly there's got to be an outpouring of some kind or the other. How, how do you see that playing out? If churches, for example, are uh, among the spaces where this is to take place, mm-hmm. what sort of form does that take? Does it take the form of dialogue? Does it take the form of, of monologues where people just come out and speak about what happened to them? Hopefully it should be more, much more dialogical. And if we're, the churches are going to do this, then we have to invest in a lot of training to make that happen. Mm. But I do think it's 
a value for people to hear each other's story. And as I said in my lectures, the, the goal of the lectures was to address the question, how do we struggle together against the social evil that harms us all, though it harms us in different ways? Mm. And I think that that's something we don't always grasp, that even the privileged in South African society don't always grasp how racism has harmed them. And we're all scarred by this. But how do we, we're scarred by it in different ways. And so how do we come to that kind of realization? How can we come to understand that even though you may um, have privilege and a, a benefit in society because of your skin color, there are still costs that have been borne. Um, one of the, the stories that most impressed me was when some people who are colored in Cape Town talked about family members who passed as white hmm. and how that split families yes. because of the severe segregation of the time that once they passed as white, family members couldn't visit them and they couldn't, and vice versa. Yes. And they didn't want to because if they did, their cover would be revealed. Right. And how you and how that with the trauma that does to a family, when you lose and you're separated and you're torn asunder by this social system, and so there's not only a, you know, a civic rendering, there's also a familial rendering. Um, how many white families were torn apart because they took different sides in the struggle against apartheid? Yes. And those stories have not been told, and so I think that. Um, it would be wonderful if churches, because churches by definition are multiracial and multi-ethnic, they have the potential to bring people together so that people can understand that, yes, we were all harmed. And from that common ground, we can then make, have room for a new beginning or a different kind of beginning. As an outsider looking in, do you perceive that white South Africans either consider themselves harmed, realize that they were harmed by, by apartheid, or realize how they were harmed. Because, because clearly the narrative, and rightly so, focuses on black suffering. Mm -hmm. but, but it doesn't seem to focus on how white South Africans may have been transformed by the experience of apartheid themselves. I don't think that, we, that most white South Africans have ever had the question posed to them that way. I think that we usually are very good at looking at how racism harms persons of color. Mm. We're not good at looking at how racism benefits white people. So the whole conversation of white privilege is a very difficult one. And we certainly aren't very good at saying how racism harms white people. I don't think we've, I don't think we've gotten to that point yet. But I think that if people can understand that this is what has to happen for us to move forward and for us to have a common future, I think there might be an opening. But there's going to be some resistance here, with, without, with, no, with, with no doubt. Um, because I don't think that many white people want to have that kind of conversation. Because if we, they do, it means that they have to come to grips with not only pain, but also privilege. Mm. And once you start doing that, then it calls for a different way of living. And that's going to be a hard thing for people to do. Yeah. Yeah. 
I want to talk a little bit about an idea that you've introduced already, and, and that is how churches can can become spaces. I mean, I think all religious spaces can become uh, beneficial spaces in in order to to work this out, to to unpack what has happened to us and and how we deal with it. But I want to briefly discuss this notion of intersectionality, where so many types of discrimination converge on the body of the black woman, racial, gendered, and classist. You know, as women, we may have the right to vote. We have, may have equality before the law. But as as the majority of citizens in this country, we're still prone to violence, uh, we, especially sexual violence in this mm-hmm. country. We struggle to make our voices heard in society, whether it's in religious organizations like the church or even in the workplace. How do we change the thinking around women's rights in the context of religious organizations and institutions that have traditionally themselves and perhaps continue to oppress women? I would correct your statement and take out the word perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) Okay, no, I'm going to take out the word perhaps. Um, You've been very gentle in the way you phrased the question, so I just want to be bold about it. That yes, the churches have a problem here, a problem of credibility. Because especially when it comes to the gender issue, churches, with very few exceptions, have not always been, um, how can I put this? We have trouble accepting the radical equality which our own faith demands of us. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the passages of scripture that I quote from is from the letter of St. Paul where he talks about the fact that those who are baptized into Christ Jesus, there is no longer any male or female, there is no longer slave or free or Jew or Greek, all are one in Christ. But the church has had a very difficult time dealing with the radical implications of that kind of equality. And it's very, when you raise the gender issue, um, I was yesterday in Cape Town, I had the opportunity to go into the slave lodge where it tells oh, the yes. history of enslavement here in South Africa, but they had a special exhibit dealing with gendered violence. And the the statistics and the stories are truly horrific. And it's not enough for us to simply say that um, violence, domestic abuse is wrong. We have to go deeper and deal with the fact that it is strongly gendered. Mm-hmm. Um, the Vatican, about 20 years ago, they put out a statement where they said that the root cause of violence against women is the largely unconscious belief that women are inferior to men and thus should be subject to the domination of men. Now, it was a brilliant statement, but I don't think most Catholics, at least, are even aware that the Vatican even said something like that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's really translate it from that kind of core truth into concrete policies then that would actualize that belief. Exactly. So so if I were to come into your church as a black woman, mm-hmm. in the hope that, that all of the difficulties I face in society, including racism, uh, patriarchy, perhaps misogyny at the same time, uh, and I, I want to exercise those demons mm-hmm. within within that space, how do I do that knowing that your church does not even allow women to become priests. So in other words, they're second-class citizens. Mm-hmm. How do I walk into that safe, that, that space safely and expect to be treated as an equal, expect to come to some sort of self-realization of my worth in society when the space in which I'm doing it is compromised? I'm glad you asked that question because in the series of lectures that I give, I talk about 
what do we need to do to create a just society? And I said that there are tr- three tasks for persons of color and three tasks for whites. The first task for persons of color is to come to the affirmation of our own equal, true humanity, to affirm our dignity, our, our beauty, our intelligence, our worth. And that's very difficult in a society that tells us in ways both you know, overt and covert that we are not intelligent, we are not competent, we are mm-hmm. not welcome. The second task then is once we come to that affirmation and appreciation of our dignity, value, and worth is then to form right relationships with whites or with, you know, with men. Mm-hmm. But that means, right relationships means being neither subservient nor hateful. In other words, I don't allow people to treat me as less than who I really am. And so paradoxically, the process of reconciliation in the short term can actually be a more tense-filled process because now I'm entering into the workplace, I'm entering into the church, and I'm saying, here I am with my own voice, with my own values and my intelligence, and this is something you have to respect. Um, when you're talking about in terms of women, um, I deal with this every day as a black priest mm-hmm. in a church, yes. um, and I'm always preaching a message which is um, not welcomed and not accepted. In fact, it's been kind of wonderful being in South Africa for the month because you've been far more welcoming than I get <laughs> in, in, in the United States. And there, oftentimes I tell people, if you are the marginalized one, we do bear the brunt of responsibility for surfacing and raising the issue that there is a gender issue here, that there is a racial issue here, that there is both a racial and gender issue here, that there's both a racial and gender and class issue here. Yes. Because one of the things I've discovered here is that race is strongly correlated to class here in South Africa. Yes, very much so. Um, it's amazing to me as I was traveling around, um, I'm sorry to jump into another transit here, um, but I was traveling around and I realized that when I go into a restaurant, for example, how many of the patrons are white, but the wait staff, the waitrons, are almost entirely black. Um, I noticed that when we was traveling around, we stopped at a, a, a petrol rest stop, for example, mm-hmm. and I noticed that many of the holidayers, the families that are holidaying and traveling, were almost always white, with a few exceptions. Mm-hmm. But the, the attendants, the people waiting on them at the rest stops, are almost entirely black. Quite true. Um, I noticed that when we pass taxis, that the people in the taxis are almost invariably almost always black. And so when you, these little things, but they signal that, that, that race, that the class divisions here are strongly correlated with race, and that we're never going to have racial justice apart from addressing the economic legacy of division and inequality. One of the things I've been thinking about is the question of whether you can have a stable democracy in the face of severe economic inequality. And in this, both South Africa and the United States share a similar dynamic. Both of our societies are marked by strong economic inequality and racial disparity and wealth disparities that are strongly correlated with race. Except I think that 
in many cases, yours are more obvious. We go through great pains in the United States to hide this yes. because we can't talk about class in the mm. United States because if we do, then we're labeled as Marxists and communists and things like this. Mm. Whereas I think that in South Africa, there's a more there's an openness to say that we are aware that this is an issue and that itself is you know, at least an improvement over what we have in the United States. But you're right, we have to become more intersectional. But I think it's also incumbent upon us then as those who are directly impacted by this, it's up to us to come to the fore and to keep raising the issue and not to let it be camouflaged or dropped away. Let me... Let me ask you, t- tapping into y- your social ethics background as an academic, uh, w- what you've just spoken about with, reg- with regard to inequality between rich and poor. I mean, part of that uh, comes from our history of, of colonization in this country. Uh, part of that has come from uh, our apartheid history. But, but part of that is, is also the result of our democratic black government part of which sought to enrich itself rather than the people. How do we come to terms with that continuum of oppression, not just from settlers, not just from from the descendants of settlers, but from our own people who've done it to us? Mm -hmm. One of the things that both your country and my country share is the fact that there have always been those in what we would call the oppressed group, who seek to enrich themselves or to better their situation um, by being co-opted by the very dynamics that preceded them. And so, yes, in order to, in order to overcome the history of the strong economic divides in South Africa, mm-hmm. I believe that we, you do need to engage the fact that this did just happen overnight. Yes. And that there were strong social policies and that created during colonialism and apartheid that contribute to this. And one of the chief ones being educational disparity. Because you can't have economic achievement if you don't have educational equality, educational opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so part of what we're dealing with is a direct effect of what happened in the past. But a contributing cause is the reality of corruption and the fact that we say in the United States that all, not all of your um, skin folk are your kin folk. In other words, mm-hmm. just because they look like you doesn't mean they have your best interest at heart. Right. And I think we need to not be afraid to criticize those who, even though they may be black, are not acting in the best interest of the people. That's something that we had to do in the, in the United States as an ongoing issue because we're a minority in the United States. And so there's also a tendency to, to close ranks and to not criticize each other, especially in public. Yes. And I think we've had, we have to get beyond that kind of false racial loyalty that says that just because you're black, you get a pass if your policies are not benefiting the nation. Uh, that's a very important thing we have to do both in America and possibly here in South Africa. I'm interested to hear simply because you're in the country as we're speaking about land expropriation without compensation. Mm. And and I don't know whether it is specifically about the issue of land or whether it's become a symbol of everything that's been stolen from black people, including their dignity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, What is your feeling on whether the government should entertain this, should go ahead and expropriate land in order to try and undo the wrongs of the past? Uh, or, or is that a threat to the kind of reconciliation that we need for an integrated society in the long run? 
it's a very complex issue, so I'm not sure I can give an, ent- an entirely appropriate answer. So I'll take a stab at it, and I'll let your listeners send me nasty emails and say, <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, I think that the problem is that when you're talking about land expropriation, if you're doing it without people understanding the historical context for that, I think many people, because again, during apartheid, the story was never told. They were never told that in 1913 there was a Natives Lands Act, yes. which severely, you know, challenged the the land distribution of land and made it along racial lines. They're not aware that there were forced removals of people from that land mm-hmm. in more recent times, like with District Six in Cape Town. And it was a situation I became aware of. But the thing is, if people aren't aware of the history of this, then you're just dropping this discussion about, you know, expropriation, and they're like, oh, you're going to give an unfair advantage to those who didn't work for it, and you're taking the land from people who own it without an historical context. So I think, one, historical context is really, really important. The other thing I would say is that I was struck by the way you, you prefaced your question, that whether the issue of land becomes a symbolic issue for other forms of grievance and resentment. And so the land issue becomes a visible symbol. We can latch onto that. Whereas there are other forms of disenfranchisement and disadvantage. Um, Housing, for Mm -hmm. example. One of the things that struck me is that you can have sprawling black townships where people are living in abject poverty in one-room homes made of corrugated steel. Mm -hmm. And in eyesight, there is a white town with well-manicured lawns and well-constructed homes, and they're living in in eyesight of each other. And so the land issue becomes an issue for other forms of deep grievance. And I'm not sure if the land issue, I mean, again, I'm not saying it's not an important issue, but I'm thinking that there are other issues that are very, very pressing in terms of housing. And how can you have you know, adequate medical care or even have adequate health if you're living in that kind of environment? Yes. Um, one of the things that struck me when I came to Johannesburg the first evening was I noticed how, how smoky the air was. Mm. And they told me it was because people are lighting fires in order to keep warm. Yes. Now you're living in a very developed city a, you know, a world, a world-class city, and yet you have a, a population that needs to burn fires and to pollute the air in order to keep warm. That kind of inequality, I don't think, will be solved through expropriation. I'm not saying that's not an important conversation, but I think your point of it being symbolic of other issues is what's really is a very important one, a very important point. Thank you so much for coming in to speak to us, Father Brian. Lovely having you today. Well, thank you. It's been my time here in South Africa has been an incredible blessing. And to leave on a note of hope, I leave convinced that South Africa holds the key to the world's future. Because racism is not just a South African issue or an American issue. It's a world issue. We see countries in Europe grappling with the changing demographics that are caused by flows of immigration. And 
what we're seeing in South Africa is that you have the potential for being a model, a beacon of what it's like to live in a multi-ethnic, multi-racial democracy of equals. And I was just thinking about this this morning as I was thinking about my time here, Mm -hmm. and I thought that if South Africa could really, truly embrace the vision of Mandela, who stood against all forms of racial supremacy, black and white, if South Africa could really live up to that potential, it could be the world's beacon and that South Africa could once again become the cradle of humankind and give birth to a new way of being human. I I really believe that. I really, really, really do believe that. What a beautiful thought to end with. Thank you so much for coming in to speak to us. Lovely to hear your insight into all of these. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.